This is the Anthony Prosotto Show, the Salon Lifestyle Podcast. It doesn't matter if you're an industry veteran or fresh out of beauty school. We have interviews with experienced industry professionals, life and business hacks, and basic information designed to help you take not just your salon or chair, but your lifestyle to the next level and have your best year ever. Okay, Dennis, thank you for joining us today. Um, I've got you on to discuss choosing hair colours and hair colour ranges for your salon. Uh, but before we start, can you tell us a bit about who Dennis Gephardt is? Oh, sure, Anthony. First of all, thank you so much for, uh, for inviting me to be on with you today. Uh, I'm very excited about that. Well, my career started quite some time ago, back in grade 8, actually. Uh, it was the first time I started doing hair because of my grandmother. I uh, went to live with my grandmother and uh, my grandfather, and she couldn't afford to go to the beauty salon, so she taught me how to do pin curls. So on Saturdays, <laughs> I set her hair in pin curls, Fantastic. and uh, eventually it wasn't just my grandmother. It was my grandmother and her girlfriends, and they brought me gifts, and I said, hey, this is pretty cool. I think I like what I'm doing. And so then I decided I wanted to uh, become a cosmetologist. Of course, in those days, we were called beauticians. And so I talked my best friend, Rudy Espinoza, into going to beauty school with me. And um, we went to beauty school together. There we were on day one, white smock, white pants, white shoes. Of course, nowadays, the hairdresser's color is black. And um, the school did a great job of teaching me to be functional, but they didn't teach me to be marketable. And so when I had my first hair color nightmare in the salon, which just happened to be Evelyn Espinoza, Rudy's mom, <laughs> uh, I realized I didn't know as much as I thought I did about hair color. Um, she came in and I had talked to her about highlighting. And I wanted to do highlighting with these two, these little things called highlighting cups. And a highlighting cup was a little small, looked like a small, um, like an eye drop, um, a little cylinder and it had a little rubber piece on the bottom with a slit in it so what you would do is you'd section the hair you'd slide it into the slit then you'd put the little the little cup on top of it and you would squirt bleach into the cup and then you would wrap the hair in saran wrap and you would place them under a dryer now anthony have you ever forgotten someone in the salon because you were busy uh I'll plead the fifth on that one. <laughs> okay. Well, I just did that with uh, with Evelyn. In fact, someone came by. They said, have you checked Rudy's mom? And I said, no. And I go running back, and I lifted up the dryer, and of course, I had created a souffle. Now, Evelyn was level two hair, and she had enough hair for a small village. So when I took all those cups, when I extracted them out of the hair, uh, she looked like a calico cat. And, of course, you know, she ran through the salon screaming, this man doesn't know what he's doing, this kid, you need to fire him, it was crazy. So, I went in search of what I call my Obi-Wan Kenobi, my Yoda of hair color, and I feel very blessed. I believe I was, uh, I was able to study with a gentleman named Sam Lappin. Many young hairdressers today have never heard the name Lappin, uh, but they were the first ones that created law, level, and family in the world of hair color in North America. Uh, and Sam, of course, one of his most famous clients because they had a salon in Santa Monica right out of Los Angeles, and uh, they did all the celebrities. But the one celebrity he is known most of all for was a lady named Norma Jean Baker until he made her Marilyn Monroe, made her a blonde. And so I went to Sam and I said, look, I'll work for you for free if you'll teach me everything you know. And um, in those days, indentured servantry was legal. So I went to work with him and I worked with him for three years. And 
he gave me two great gifts. The first gift is he gave me was a uh, gift of encouragement. He said, there isn't anything you can't do in this industry as long as you stay passionate and stay committed. The second gift he gave me was the gift of knowledge. He said, if you want to master hair color, you have to understand how hair color works. So when I left his employment at, at year number three, I re-enrolled in school. I uh, enrolled in the University of California in Long Beach. And I was fortunate enough to get my degree in chemistry which led me to a career with uh, a major manufacturer, and I was involved in product development as, long as, as well as education. I worked on a team that was responsible for the launch of many products, hair color products that are still used in the beauty industry today. And so that is who I am. We have a salon here in Upland, California. My wife and I have had a salon here now for many, many years. Um, so I am actually a functioning hairdresser. I work behind the chair. Um, and I also, uh, in early 2015, we formed a company called Guru Villages so that we could give good, honest, uh, non-branded factual information and education to salon professionals so that they could be, they could master the career. And so that's who Dennis Gephardt is. I love this business. It's been a great to me. And I love the opportunity to share with others and help them grow in this industry as well. Fantastic. It sounds like you've had a very, very interesting career. It has been. It's been an adventure. <laughs> okay. Getting to what we were going to talk about today is color ranges. Now, uh, there's a multitude of color companies appearing. Um, people are constantly changing ranges. Is there more to choosing a color range than just the price and the pretty colors in the swatch chart? Well, yes, there is. Uh, actually, you know, when when I look at a color range and and looking at it as a new new range, I'm going to be bringing in the salon. Here are the things that I look for. First of all, I look for product performance. Uh, I truly believe that. Uh, because in most salons, gray coverage still makes up a huge amount of the business. I want to see, does this product cover gray successfully? Does it, does it give the finish that I'm looking for? I look to see how the product smells. You know, is it uh, high in alkalinity? Does it have an offensive smell? Does it have a great fragrance? How does it spread? How does it mix? Those are the things in product performance that I look for. In the high lift blondes, I look to see if, if, number one, can they give me maximum lift in one step? Do they give me enough refinement over unwanted warmth in the hair? I look to see if their reds give me a wide enough selection for both cool and warm red shades. I look to see if they have uh, brunettes that are not just one tone, but there are several different versions of brunettes. So, so those are the things that I look for, even before I look for price point, which is important. And, um, and I'm really not, it doesn't excite me how pretty the swatch book is, but here's what the swatch book does mean to me is that when I do die outs and I die out every brand that I use before I start using it. And I believe that the color has to match the swatch in the swatch book. Now here's what most people don't know, Anthony, about those swatch books, those swatch books. Number one, that's not real hair. That's plastic. So, and, or nylon, I should say. So unless you're, you know, <laughs> that's why your swatch books don't fade. So truly, when, when they put together a swatch book, you know, they need to make sure that the color, that the result, the color matches what the swatch says it should match. Now, here's the funny thing. A lot of salon professionals have never dyed out their 
color to see if they match the swatch book. I recommend that they do that. It'll be a huge eye-opening experience. Amazing. I, I never realized that they were made out of plastic. That's incredible, <laughs> which does so, explain why they don't fade. Now, right. thinking about a die-out, um, I know you can get uh, yak hair that you can dye out that's white. Is it better to dye out on, on something like that that's got a white uh, clear base to start with or so you can see what pigments are actually developing or on making hair swatches on various color levels on natural hair? Okay, great. I recommend on the white yak hair first and foremost because it helps you determine the base. It also helps you see how the color oxidizes. Here's why I say that. See, there are some colors that oxidize, and, and in the world of chemistry, we call them dirty formulas, meaning that the chemists who created those formulas, they put every dye intermediary in that formula they could think of. And you can usually tell when, that's a, when it's what we call a dirty formula, because as it oxidizes, it looks like, it looks like mud. It looks like the bottom of a river. Okay, And then there are clean formulas, and you know those clean formulas because when you watch those oxidize in the bowl, they actually maintain their color for a prolonged period of time. They don't turn muddy and flat, and that to me is a clean formula. So when I do dye-outs, I'm looking to see, you know, is there clarity? Because a lot of brands make like gold families, for example, and if you take a very dirty formula and you're going to, add gold intermediary dyes to it, that's what you're going to try and do is create some more reflect. It's not going to have the reflect or that pristine quality of a true golden tone because of the background color. So that's why it's very important to do dye outs so that you can actually see the color that you're working with. Fantastic. Okay. Um, now, there's always a lot of talk when it comes to color companies. Uh, now, we know there's only a few companies in the world that actually make color. So... Uh, various companies produce for many, many brands. Is there a difference amongst the brands they produce for? Like, do they have custom formulations or is it just a repackaging of that manufacturer's color in four or five different companies' tubes? Yeah. Well, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of both, actually. Here, here's, here's what we know. In order for me to make a color, <clears throat> no matter what it is, there are probably going to be more similarities in the brands than there are differences. Because in order for me to make a color, I have to have surfactants, I have to have solvents, I have to have preservatives, I have to have antioxidants, I have to have chelators. All of those are universal among every hair color that's manufactured. Where the difference comes in is in what I call the enhancements which make up about 5%. Because truly, you know, some of those things that we add into our colors to make that sound good, like quinoa and milk protein and royal bee jelly, <laughs> all those beautiful things, you know, truly, you can't put that much of them into a chemical because they won't last. They will degrade. So, Really, most of the marketing on color brands is done on the 5%, not on the 95%, which is chemical. So, yes, manufacturers, some do have their own custom formulas, but the only customization that they're really doing is really working on that enhancement portion of the hair color. Now, because 
you know, there's only really three dye intermediary types that you use in, when you color hair. There's paraphenylene, PPDs, there's paratoluene, PTDs, and there's aminophenol, APDs. Those are the only three dye intermediary bases that are used in hair color today. Not many manufacturers are willing to invest Okay, our brand company, our companies are willing to invest to focus on the chemical makeup of their hair color. They're, they're much easier for them to invest and they make a larger margin of profit if they only focus on the 5% cent, 5 of the enhancement. Now, there's always that one factory in Italy <laughs> that you can go into and they give you a book, like a swatch book. And they say, pick your flavor. And you go in and you go, I want this one. And then they'll put your name on it. And it's, it's just a universal formulation for a hair color. Right. So it's 5% extras. Everything's yes. pretty much the same. And the rest comes down to the marketing story of the company that's produced for. Yes, indeed. Okay. Now, that marketing story, that's that's where I think a lot of people get very wrapped up and invested in. Yes. Uh, and that's what the color is, what's in it, what it doesn't have. Um, let's discuss a few things like that. Uh, sure. A couple of chemicals, uh, dye intermediaries you mentioned was PPD and PTD. Um, right. They're based on um, a lot of stories around those whether those additives are cancerous, so they cause allergies and problems like that. Is there a big difference between the two? Is it better to have one or the other? Great uh, question. A hair, a, a hair point of view, quality of hair and, and dye or color uh, and a health point of view. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll give you the pros and cons of each one. Yep. Okay. So, PPDs, paraphenylene diamines, uh, a lot of bad press because there's a vague link between that and some carcinogenic situations. Um, are there reactions to paraphenylene dyes? There, there can be. But here's why most people build up an allergic reaction to PPD dyes or any dye. Now, it doesn't have to necessarily be paraphenylene dye. is overexposure. And overexposure a lot of time comes from the salon service itself. Think about how many times you've seen a salon professional lift the client out of the shampoo bowl and there's still residual color on the neck because they did not do a complete post-oxidation, a successful post-oxidation service. And they simply wipe it off. Well, see, that residual is still on the skin. And so it's definitely possible for overexposure for that client to build up an allergic reaction to it. Now, the reason that color chemists and still use PPD dyes is because here's the good news about PPT dyes. They give you excellent color to cover gray. They're excellent in that. They are excellent to create bright red shades. They are excellent in creating beautiful, rich brunette shades. So they have a lot of positives that versus the negatives. Now, paratoluene. From what I understand, uh, uh, that PPDs have actually been banned by the EU. So most countries that are connected to the EU, they are not using PPD dyes. They are really using paratoluene dyes. Okay. Now, the one thing that I do want to share with you, and I'm just going to have to show you, because I want you to see 
that manufacturers use PPD dyes, but they don't call them PPD dyes. Okay, this sheet right here, paraphenylene dyes right at the top. I'm gonna. I'll read these to you. Okay, yep, these okay. are all the. These are all the other names that PPD dyes go by. So when someone says we are PPD free, if you find two comma five di amino hydroxyl ethyl benzene, that's a long word, isn't that's a it? Huge word. Two comma five dash di amino hydroxyl ethyl benzene. That's another name for PPD. If you find 2,5-diaminotoluene, that's another name for PPD dyes. If you find tetraaminoparamiodine, that's another paraphenylene dye. <laughs> if you find endoanilines, that's another paraphenylene dye. If you find endophenols, that's another name for paraphenylene dyes. And if you find diaminoparazole, that's another name for paraphenylene dyes. So, when wow. you read the ingredient deck, <laughs> these are all the other names, what we call side, side combinations, where they take and they tweak the formula slightly. So, the great thing about chemistry is that if I change one component, <laughs> I can change the name of the ingredient. And so that's what they do to us. Now, paratoluene. Paratoluene dyes have less allergic reaction than paraphenylene dyes. I didn't say they don't have any reaction because truly, if you look at the original test that was done, okay, and they say they're 57% safer. That's what the that's what the, the result of the test was. Do you know how many people they tested, Anthony? Uh, it, I would be surprised if it was anywhere near 100. No. 10. Yeah. <laughs> so, here's what here's the downside of paratoluene. Number 1, the reds are flat. They don't, you know, they're, they're you can't get brightness out of them. They have an issue with covering gray hair. And the natural series are usually very very flat and muddy looking. So, using exclusively paratoluene isn't always the best it's not going to always give you the results that you're looking for now some manufacturers are using a combination so what they do is they put paratoluene in the medium to darker shades they add in a little bit of paraphenylene under the other names so they get the gray coverage and they get the rich brunette and because they don't need coverage in the lighter shades they can focus mostly on paratoluene ptd dyes and and then they can say we're ppd free amazing it's a crazy it's, world it's like the wizard of oz it's it like is, don't it's, look it, behind the curtain <laughs> exactly i'll get you to send me through that list and um in the show notes i'll actually put a list of those different words uh names for pp D, so that um, the listeners can actually do a bit of research and see exactly what's going on for their, their current All right. stories. <laughs> Another wonderful marketing thing that I see, and it frustrates the life out of me, is organic hair color. Oh, yes. Um, I, I have a, a little bit of understanding of organic chemistry. So... <laughs> I understand how they can call things organic hair colors. 
Yes. Can you please explain to our listeners why they get away with calling these things organic hair colors and how and how come they can't just add carrot juice to our color and make uh, our coppers and blueberries to our violets and red strawberries into our reds to get our hair colors? Well, uh, you know, the, the, again, we live in a world of semantics. Okay, so actually, when we talk about organic, you know, according to the regulations here in North America, in order for you to be able to call a product organic, it has to contain at least one carbon molecule, which means that actually all hair color is organic, and so is gasoline. <laughs> they are all organic. But that's, of course, not the organic that marketing people push. And so here's what I, I ask every salon professional to think about. We have chemical bonds in our hair that are affected when we color hair. They're called disulfide bonds. And the only way that you can break or degrade a disulfide bond is you have to have some sort of a chemical to do that. It's the only way it can be done. So we cannot make 100% organic hair color and, and achieve the results that we're looking for. But because we add in things like blueberries and strawberries and all of those kind of things, people think that it is organic. And so it's, it's just crazy the way that we have taken a word and used it as a broad brush to address hair color, for God's sakes. Now, vegetable hair color, back in the day, which was vegetable stains, basically is what it was, that's organic, but you can't lighten hair, and you certainly can't make a brunette blonde, and you can't make a brunette or redhead. I mean, you can stain the hair, but that's all that you can do. So... It's really an oxymoron. That's the way I would look at it. Mm. You know, two things that don't belong in the same sentence is organic and hair color. Thank you for that. That that clarifies my belief, anyway. Uh, and I guess it comes back to the to the, the marketing story again. All these things that they are adding are in that five percent that is not the chemical component of the hair color. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and they and they add some conditioning agents in the developers that they manufacture too. So sometimes it's a, um, it's a pairing. In other words, the developer has some of the conditioning qual qualities in it and so does the color. But they never sell it that way. They always sell it as our color brand has these conditioning qualities. That's why hairdressers run into a real problem when they try to, you know, they, they figure, I'm going to buy um, a different developer. I'm going to go to the big box beauty discount place and I'm going to buy a developer I can buy for $3 a, a liter as opposed to paying $10 a liter. And then they mix it with their hair color and suddenly the hair color doesn't congeal <laughs> or it runs down the client's face or they don't get the lift out of it. And um, see, today in 2016, you know, we really don't use hydrometers to measure the volume of developer. That's not required anymore. So they give you a range. So in any given range, like a 10 volume, you could take four bottles of 10 volume, and one could be 10, one could be 8, one could be 12, because they're allowed to be within that range and call them that volume of developer. Yeah. So, so sometimes when they put 
some of the conditioning agents or even aggregates. For example, um, I was responsible for developing a color brand many years ago where the it was a liquid in a bottle, but the aggregates or the thickening agents were in the developer. So when you mix them together, it created a gel cream consistency. So many people said, well, I don't want to use your developer. I'll use this developer, and, and then it would not mix well, and they got very upset about it. And um, the fact is that depending on how the brand is made, some brands require that you use both developer and the color from within the brand in order to make it work successfully. Okay. Well, that's really interesting. It's um, because I, I know here in Australia, we see a lot of the cheaper brands that are imported uh, come without developers because mm-hmm. uh, I, I guess it's a product that needs special freight. They can't just um, fly it in, right? So uh, that you tend to see locally produced, develop generic developers go with a lot of um, cheaper color, and not even necessarily cheaper color ranges, but a lot of color ranges uh, that are sold outside of the manufacturers or the companies here that are sold right. through um, distributors and things like that. So sure, and I guess for the distributor, it's great because buying a generic. Uh, developer with their own label on it's often a lot cheaper so their their margin is also a lot higher but it's not necessarily the best thing for the hair color no uh well depend and especially if they were designed to work together in a pairing if they're not you know and the thickening agents are in the color you know you can use a a different developer but they have to understand that you know, there's a lot of flexibility now <laughs> in, in the manufacturing of hydrogen peroxide yeah. for hair. Mm. Another marketing story we get is ammonia-free um, <laughs> and uh, whether to use ammonia, not ammonia, to uh, the alternative to ammonia, I guess, is MEA. What's the pros and cons of both ammonia and MEA? Great question. Great question. Well, actually, ammonia and MEA are what we call chemical cousins. Okay, so that's important for people to know. Now, what I mean by that is that um, ammonia, if I, if I want to make MEA, here's how I make it. I take ammonia, which is one uh, nitrogen molecule holding three hydrogen molecules in suspension. If I take one hydrogen molecule and I change it to alcohol, I no longer have ammonia. I now have MEA. Okay, so that's that's how that's closely sort of coming they- back to our story of the PPDs and yeah, <laughs> and, and how so we that's how, of those, that's yeah. how closely they're related. They're like you know they're like a family where they they're inbreeding. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so here's the difference: ammonia is a volatile. So ammonia is really designed to start the action. It's really not designed to give you a prolonged process. That's why in most hair color brands, ammonia and MEA both exist in the formula, but people don't talk about the MEA. Okay, because ammonia really starts the action, then it dissipates, and MEA, which is part of the rest of the base of the color, you know, it's in that base because it's a liquid, it's maintaining the alkalinity during the process. Because if you could not maintain alkalinity, then you wouldn't get the lift that you were looking for. And if we relied specifically on ammonia, ammonia goes away much quicker. The only reason we think it's still there on high, in high ammonia products is because it has such a pungent fragrance. So many times they pair them together. 
Ammonia also has a smaller molecular weight, which means it will penetrate the skin and it will penetrate the hair. Here's the downside of that. If it penetrates the hair, it can create porosity in the hair fiber. If it penetrates the skin, it can cause the skin to dry out and then it can create the color then will stain the skin. So colors usually that have high staining, other than direct dyes, we're talking about oxidation right. colors only, where they have high staining results, usually that's because they have a higher ratio of ammonia than what most other ones would. But see, in our industry, we only talk about the ammonia level in color. That's all we ever talk about. We never talk about the alkalinity level in hair color. Okay, now, MEA is a larger molecular weight. It does not penetrate the skin. It does not penetrate the hair. But here's the downside of MEA. Uh, what it, well, the good side is it doesn't smell, so people love that. But the downside is because it doesn't smell, salon professionals can't really always do a successful post-oxidation treatment because they can't tell that the hair has been rinsed clean or thorough. So there's still sometimes residual MEA in that hair. And if they don't do a great post-oxidation service, that product continues to oxidize. And so down the line, three to four months using that, the hair becomes brittle and dry. And they wonder, how did that happen? It was because of being MEA only, not having ammonia in it. Now, some manufacturers today create non-ammonia hair colors, but they say they will give you up to three to four levels of lift. Now, there's only one way they can do that. <laughs> they have to increase the ratio of MEA in those lighter shades to the point to where it will dry that hair out and it will make that hair very, very brittle. And in many cases, and you probably hear a lot of people saying this today, ammonia-free products sometimes can be more damaging to the hair than products that have primarily, they use ammonia as the catalyst. Because in order to use MEA, it's like that ever-ready bunny. You know, it, it keeps on running, but it doesn't shoot out of the gate. I always look at ammonia and say, it explodes and then it disappears that's basically what it does so both of them usually are in most hair color brands manufacturers are are a lot of them sell ammonia free hair colors because that is the the socially political thing to do because someone said well you know ammonia is terrible if you breathe it in it'll crystallize in your in your lungs listen anthony people make ammonia every morning the human species makes ammonia. So you have to, we have to get past that. Okay. And so that is why. See, I find a lot of times, you know, in our industry, it's a social thing. In other words, this is a cool thing to do now. So now this is what we sell. Or this is a cool thing to do. This is what we sell. I mean, that's why we have all of these synthetic additives that we're adding into our color products today now because it's the cool thing to do. The only problem is they don't know what the long-term effects are going to be using these. And so um, it, it's a cycle that we go through. Now, so that's my spin on ammonia and MEA. Okay. You, we've talked, you've touched on alkalinity a, f a few times. and Yes. That's where my next question leads. Uh, and I, I don't want you to go into a big detail because I know you cover that in some other things. Um, 
the difference between hybrid and dedicated color lines. So a hybrid being one tube that's a semi-demi permanent and uh, a regular line being a, a range that has a permanent and a demi and maybe a semi in separate tubes. Right. What's the difference? And, you know, is is it is one better than the other? Um, how can you expand on that for us? All right. Let's see. Uh, that's a slippery slope that I walk all the time because <clears throat> I was part of the team that created the first demi-permanent hair color that was ever made for our industry. In fact, the word demi-permanent wasn't even in our industry until 1988 because okay? demi had nothing to do with hair color. <laughs> so here is what an actual demi-permanent color is. It must have a pH no higher than 8.5 in the tube or in the bottle. That way, when you mix it with a 2.5 to 3.5 pH peroxide or developer or activator or whatever the beautiful name is we give it, it processes at a neutral pH of 7 or less. Now, here's where the problem gets really difficult because I believe that they have stretched the definition of demi to a, a scenario where today people are thinking that I have one tube and the pH of this product in the tube is 9.2. And I mix it with a developer at, you know, down around 2.5 to 3.5. That color will not process neutral. That color will be alkaline, which means that on certain textures of hair, it will shift the tone of the hair. Okay, uh, I've heard people say, well, then we have a special magical solution that takes the ammonia <laughs> out of the hair color. You, I don't know of anything that I've ever heard of in my career that could extract the ammonia <laughs> out of hair color by simply mixing it with a permanent hair color. Now, manufacturers who, who do this, they try to and the reason they do it is because no one's really given a lot of training on demi-permanent. You know, it was here, but people really didn't know how to use it. And yet it's a very, very, it's a very essential part, I believe, in the color cabinet. Because it enables you to use it for a multitude of reasons and color correction and glazing and all of those things that we do. Um, but... Those hybrid colors, most of them are processing at alkaline pH. So if you're using it on medium to coarser textures of hair, you may be able to get by. But on finer textures of hair, you're going to have negative reactions. So uh, for me, it's just a, a it's a play on words, and it's a manufacturer that's trying to condense their investment and try to tell people they actually have a color that has a brain. Now. You know, I've only been doing this for three and a half decades, Anthony, and I've yet to come across the color that has a brain. How about you? Have yeah, you seen a color? <laughs> I've been doing it for about almost as long, and no, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that's that's my my spin on that. Hybrid colors, I don't believe they really. I don't really know of one, uh, unless it's a color that has a pH of eight point five. But then their high lifts have to be completely different in alkalinity because they have to really boost those up in order to get the lift out of the okay. color service. So, again, it's, it's becomes another marketing story 
Yes. Used to sell a color range. And, and I've heard you talk on Periscopes before. It's, um, not necessarily bad to have them, but just to be aware of what you're using. Absolutely. You know, my whole goal is to help my fellow salon professionals just know what you're using. You know, if whatever you want to use, that's up to you as a professional, but know what it is. And, and then if you have an unexpected result that turns out, then you can say, okay, fine. You know, I understand why that happened the way that it did. Fantastic. Another story I hear uh, a lot is micropigments, the latest, well, it's not the latest development. It's probably a couple of years old now, but micropigments, they're, they're their color pigments penetrate yeah. better into the hair and the longer lasting and, and the whole heap of benefits and that. What are micropigments? Uh, is there really such a thing? Well, uh, actually, there there are. And um, one major manufacturer was the first one to develop those. And they were in the – the red families were the first ones where they developed them because they wanted to have better penetration and – and they did not want to have to add direct dyes into colors anymore. See, years ago, because we did not have the the selection of intermediary dyes to select from, you would have a permanent hair color, but there would also be direct dyes put into it. That's where the word dye load came from. In other words, I would take reds, which really weren't really red-red. They were more red-orange. Those were the kind of intermediaries we got. But I would add then direct dyes that were red-red to them to give them that vibrancy. And they looked beautiful in the beginning at the first color service. But as that color wore on, they would fade off and you would be left with what the true color was looking like. Now, today, we have micropigments, and it's not exclusive to any manufacturer. They're, they're, very, they're widely available to everyone. And so, you know, a lot of manufacturers use it as a point of difference. Uh, and a lot of manufacturers say, well, no, everybody's using them, so we don't even talk about it. As though, you know, like, it's not, it's not that important any longer. Micropigmentation is, you can tell that today because it, it allows you to get better penetration of color. It also allows the color to have more longevity. There are brands out there today that use micropigmentation where the fading in a 30-day window is minimal compared to what it was years ago. So, yes, micropigments exist, and a lot of manufacturers are using them. Okay. That's really great to know. And having been in the industry for an extended period of time, the colors we do today are extremely different to the colors we did 20 and 30 years ago. Yes. Um, the results, the what, the longevity of the color and that, so I, I can understand that completely. My next question is coming to the bases of colors, and that's another marketing point. A lot of companies, when you're speaking to their representatives, is that they're a blue base, they're a green base, they're a gray base. What does that actually mean, and does it really make a difference to how the color works for us? Okay, great question. Uh, it does make a difference, and um, the reason that they talk about bases is because um, when we build a color, you know, usually brown is part of that base. Well, we know the color brown is not a cool color. The color brown is actually warm. So as a manufacturer, because I teach that brown's in the center of the color wheel, some of them still do that. So I add in a uh, based tone 
to the formulation in order to pull it as close to the center of the color wheel as I possibly can. And so some manufacturers use green. The problem with that is that green is not required at all levels. When you're lightening hair, lifting and depositing, you don't always require green in your formulation. So some manufacturers try to soften it by adding more yellow to it. And then when they add more yellow to it, they end up creating a color base that's too too warm. I'm sure you've had people say, well, I used this one and it was warmer than the other one. Well, that could be because of the ratio of uh, diintermediaries that they used in that tonal base. Uh, blue base is, uh, again, it's a great control. Uh, for a blue base and color, but then when you get into lighter shades, the blue base can be uh, a real issue for you because it can make the color, it can over, you can overcompensate with it so the color can come out and be too flat. So many manufacturers, they temper the base tones. In other words, it's not a green base, it's a green-gray base. It's not a blue base, it's a blue-gray base. Now, if Dennis was making a hair color brand, <laughs> I would make <laughs> my natural series would have a gray base because that's the center of the color wheel. Okay. Then my ash series would have a, uh, depending on what level, it would be in accordance. So in the deeper shades, the deeper levels, I would probably have a green gray base and then I would change it to a blue gray since the shades got, a uh, blue gray base as the shades got lighter. Um, and, and, but people don't do that. Manufacturers, that's too much to invest in, in all the different brands. Um, so that's why today many, many salon professionals use a, they have a, a myriad of colors in their cabinet. Have you noticed that? It's like they have a little bit of this brand and a little yes. bit of that brand and a little bit of this. And, and for me, because I've been in the industry for so long, I'm going, oh, my God, they're taking me all the way back to, to the beginning when they all had a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It was like a walk in time. <laughs> and I said, now we're back there again because of the explosion of hair color and because everybody's trying to make that point of difference. I think that... <clears throat> You, as a professional, have to make a decision on what shades are going to work the best for you for your client base. Now, you can't just, I can't just purchase a brand and because they all have the same base, and that brand may not work for me on every one of my clients. So I say, you know, I recommend, because no one's built a brand like I just shared with you yet, um, I recommend that they choose the colors based upon the needs of their clients. You know, if you're working on really extremely dark hair, then you're going to need a different base color than if you're working on medium to light shades of hair. If you work on a combination, you're going to have to have a combination of tones. That's why people aren't always, that's why they aren't always happy with the entire range of manufacturer because manufacturers don't focus on that. It's too much investment. Okay. That's really, really interesting. Yeah. Another thing I, I see is is the range of colors that a lot of companies have. You know, you, you've got them from compact ranges of eighty to ninety something colors up to some of the bigger ones, one hundred and twenty plus colors. Is it better to have a large range of premix colors, or is it better to have a smaller range and mix your own? Um, well, here's what we know. Most hairdressers only use six shades of color in any given brand. 
Wow. That's a, that's a fact. Really? They have their favorite red. They have their favorite blonde. <laughs> they have their favorite chocolate, if you will, or whatever. And they don't use a lot of the rest because we are creatures of habit and comfort. And we like to formulate by recipe. So uh, do they need 300 shades? Probably not. <laughs> do they need pre-mixed shades? I recommend that because we are in an industry where people love to go to the back room and mix. And sometimes when they're, wor when they're working with one brand, I don't have an issue with that. But it's when they have more than one brand. Because a level 8 in one brand may have a different set of dye intermediaries than a level 8 in another brand. Does that make sense? Yes. And, and so if I mix those two together, now I'm having a chemical reaction that may or may not be successful for me. So, so pre-mix pre colors are great to have for them. Uh, so that you, there's not too ex too much extra mixing that goes on, but they don't need 300 shades of color. Most, I mean, unless you're really someone who goes from one extreme to the other, you know, a condensed brand is probably an easier brand to work with. You know, some brands, depending on the shades that you're looking for, you know, I think any more than maybe a 90 to 100 shades is it's too much. Just, you're never going to use those colors. No. Uh, I'm going to count how many colors I use now next time I'm in the salon. Because <laughs> uh, I know I probably use a little bit more than six, but probably not a great deal more. Right. Um, isn't that scary? It's just funny, it, isn't well, it? It's, it's, it's really true because you have your favorite. Yeah. And, and I probably... Yeah, I, I probably work within my chocolates. I like a, a particular chocolate, and I probably go a shade lighter, a shade darker or so, depending on the hair I'm working on. Um, right. Uh, the same with my blondes, the, the reds, and everything, yeah. So I can right. totally understand how that works. When it comes to mixing shades, how many different tubes can we mix together before we end up with just a, a, a mixture of mud? Two. Two. <laughs> and maybe an accent color, but no more than two look if you look if you set down a color wheel in front of yourself and you mix two colors together you're going to be mixing somewhere you're mixing across the wheel partially mm -hmm. okay or even mixing them together even if you're mixing on in harmonic tones you're going to be creating you know you're going to be creating too much chroma so you're going to flatten that color out and it's going to end up being mud now people who mix more than one color or more than two colors, that's all emotional. See, my mentor always said to me, he said, after the first two colors you mix, everything else is emotion, meaning that you have this conversation in your head, <laughs> and, and it, it's either, yeah, but, or what if. <laughs> and so you say, well, I better add a squirt of this, a dollop of that, a pinch, a pea, and I always say, which kind of pea are you speaking of? An American pea or an English pea? Do you know there's two different sizes? So when you say the size of a pea, what pea are you talking about? We, we add all this stuff in. That's all emotion most all of the time. I mean, I'm sure you have people who uh, you know that uh, they have to have a splash of this in, 
in their color. Oh, yes. I, I, yeah. Give me a splash. And you just kind of go, okay, so what is that splash going to do for you? It's going to emotionally make you feel better, but it's not necessarily going to do anything to the end formula. I try to keep formulas clean and simple. Clean and simple. So any more than two, maybe if you have to add an extra accent color, maybe adding an accent. That I'm talking about a pure tone. Yeah. I'm not talking about anything else that has a combination of dyes. Uh, that's... That's my recommendation. <laughs> Fantastic. It makes a lot of sense. And, and I do. I see it quite often um, where people will work and they'll their thing is they have a, a pee or splash <laughs> of a red in their color formulas. And every formula they do has that in it. And, you know, even their level threes and fours where that splash of red's not going to be doing anything, it really is that emotional and it is um, tied to it, isn't it? Right. It's their little signature sometimes, yep. I find. It's like, I got to put a little bit of this in there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, to wrap it up, a lot of companies now, you see they produce a professional line and they also produce a drugstore supermarket line. Right. What's the difference between professional hair color and drugstore hair color? Okay. There's not a lot, honestly. There's not a lot. Um, when my clients ask me or when I'm asked about what's the difference between what you're using and what I buy in the drugstore, I say to them, I'm the difference. At the drugstore, you don't have me. And I said, and, and I try to, to stress to them that that is the difference. I know that we have all these stories about, well, you know, they use different kinds of dyes or that they have extremely high ammonia. Well, in, in here in North America, and I'm sure in Australia it's the same way, we have a regulation. So it doesn't matter what color you make, there's a certain specific amount of ammonia that you can have in your product, and you can't exceed that in the finished mixture. And so I try to, to not try to just slam the drugstore brands. I try to explain to them it's about the professional uh, can i share a story with you yes please all right so last year when we started our company um i went to cvs which is a drugstore and i bought a box of l'oreal box hair color l'oreal preference i had one of my clients i colored her hair with l'oreal preference and then I took her photograph and I posted it on social media. And my post said, why would a savvy colorist use a box color on their client and then post it on social media? I said, here's my point. It wasn't the color that made her hair beautiful. It was the experience and expertise of the colorist. And... I did that because I want I want salon professionals to understand is that we do not we do not we try to to blame the the drugstores for that and and it's terrible that manufacturers do that but if I think like a manufacturer look I paid a lot of money for that equipment I do not want that equipment shut off at five p.m. at night and not start back up until seven o'clock the next morning anybody who knows anything about manufacturing knows that that's not the way they work. They go, hey, look, 
clean out the racks. Let's put in the new bottles, <laughs> new labels, and let's move forward. We're working 24-7. But I try to get some professionals to understand is that you're the magic. You are the magic. And you have to take control of that. And you do that by, one, grounding yourself and understanding how hair color works, building your skills with your client base, and helping them understand, look, I'm the professional. That's a difference. You can go to the store. You can buy a hair color. You can put it on your hair. Now, when you come to me after that, that's called color correction. I'm sorry. Your fee has just increased. You know, you have to take the industry back. And when we do that, then we will be successful like we want to be in this business. Exactly. That is so, so true. The magic is not the bottle, it's us. That's right. Mm. Uh, I think we've covered just about everything I wanted to cover in that before we go on to a few other questions I have for you. Is there anything else that we should consider or think about when it comes to choosing a color line for our salon, Dennis? Well, you know what? I, I One of the things is I read over the questions that we were going to be discussing is that I noticed there wasn't anything about lighteners, about bleach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, bleach is very, it's making, it's really popular now with balayage and um, ombres and all of these different things that people are doing. And now you've got powdered bleaches, you've got bleaches with clay, you've got all these different types of lightening products today. And I I think that as salon professionals, we need to kind of understand that, you know, when you choose a lightener, you want to choose a lightener that uh, one, you know, mixes well, that spreads easily and stays moist. And sometimes those lighteners don't based upon the ingredients that they have in them. For example, a lot of the clay lighteners today that people are using, and their clay's not new, it's been used for years. Kaolin has been used in the ingredients in bleaching product, is that uh, some of them where it's the primary ingredient in the product, one of the complaints I hear from them is they say, well, it dries out quicker because and i have to use a higher volume of developer and i try to get them to understand it depends on where kaolin is on the ingredient deck if it's the number one or number two ingredient you might have an issue with the product drying out but if it's down at number three or number five it's in the top five of that ingredient deck kaolin's going to keep the hair smooth it's going to allow you to apply it well and it's going to stay moist for you so when they're picking out a lightener, they have to look for that. You know, when people say, well, I want a lightener that has blue in it because I need to control warmth. And here's the fact. The blue in those lighteners really doesn't do anything to control warmth. Most of the times when they use blue, if it comes from chamomile, because chamomile, the derivative they use is the desensitizer, it's blue. It has nothing to do with... Uh, you know, controlling warmth, it has to do with desensitizing the scalp. So you're telling me that purple peroxide they're selling me is not going to control anything? <laughs> I'm telling you it's it's going to be fun to use and you're going to have a great time with it, but don't expect it to control the undertone for you. You know, so, so lighteners are important to work with. I, I always recommend that you have at least two. One, ammonia-free. The reason I say that is because ammonia-free lighteners are not usually not as aggressive. Usually their pH is around 10.2, okay? 
But lighteners that have ammonium persulfate in them, potassium persulfate, those kind of ingredients on their ingredient deck, they are higher in pH. Some of them are closer to almost 11 in pH. Okay, so, you know, if I want, I, I always have one that's a, what I call a power lifter, and I have one that is a workhorse. So for lighter heads of hair, level six and lighter, I use the ammonia free. I don't, I don't need something that's really aggressive. You know, I need something that's just going to lighten a few levels, and I'm, I'm happy with that. But um, most importantly, it is, you know, making sure that you're using uh, one that works for you, one that is... Um, that is going to stay moist, and that the, based upon that, the, the moisture in that product depends on how strong the product is. Remember that the higher the pH of the powder, the more oxygen is going to be released from the developer, and so it's going to dry out faster. So it's like sucking all that oxygen out of the developer. So those kind of lighteners are going to dry out much quicker than ones that don't do that. So you really have to take a look at the lighteners and see which works best for you. Okay. that's And that's a, a very relevant point because, as you said, balayage, ombres, these hand-painting techniques with the various lighteners is, is now a, a huge part of our industry. Oh, it is, yes. And just so that uh, quickly so that everybody understands that have don't know or may have forgotten, when it comes to pH, the difference between 10 and 11 is really huge, isn't it? It's not like it's just gone up a bit. It's huge. Here's, here's the best example I can give you. Let's start at 7. At 7, it's one Coca-Cola. When I move one space, it becomes 10 Coca-Colas. Another space, it's 100 Coca-Colas. So you can understand that from 10.2 to 11 is like 100 to sometimes 1,000 times stronger. Okay, remember the pH scale is logarithmic. You're right. It may be a tiny, it's like reading a map. I think we still have maps left in this world. You know, you look on a map and you go, well, it's not far from that town to that town until you actually are there driving. And then you realize... It's condensed. It makes it seem like it's not a long distance, but mm. it's a huge, huge distance. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Uh, I've got a few more questions, more on a, a bit of a personal note. Um, All right. So I want to know a bit more about you. What's your favorite word? My favorite word? Yep. Integ integrity. Integrity. What turns you on creative, creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Wow. Uh, well, it turns me on creative, spiritually, or emotionally. Um, great people, um, working with my passion, working with hair, yeah. uh, great music. All of those things turn me on. Fantastic. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Other than my own, what I'd like to attempt? Well, you know, I was a musician. Oh, really? I did yes. not know that. But I, um, I I had to stop that and focus on hair. <laughs> but um, I, I probably I would go back I would go back to that. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What profession would you not like to do? What profession would I not like to do? I wouldn't like to sit and work in a cubicle. I couldn't stand doing that. Yeah, that would be really anything that would keep me from being with people 
and, you know, keep me isolated. I don't want to do anything that keeps me isolated. Awesome. Last one. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Oh, boy. I would probably like to hear him say, we have a beautiful salon for you to work in. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. Now, just to um, finish up, we spoke. you spoke a little bit about Guru Villages initially. Can yes. you tell us a little bit more about Guru Villages, how people can assess the, access the training and information about that? Great, Anthony, I'd be happy to. Uh, we have a website, and it is www.guruvillages.com. Uh, like, uh, we have started, our company started in uh, early 2015, so we are a newbie in the industry. It was a vision of myself and my partner, Nancy Carroll, and then our, our other partner, Christian Faircloth, joined us. And we decided that we wanted to offer non-branded education to salon professionals. We wanted to give them accurate, scientific, honest information about the products they use, about ways for them to increase their business and master their craft. We have uh, done that by starting with webinars first. If you log on to our website, you can find that we have pre-recorded webinars that you can purchase and you're, you're, you can watch. We also offer live webinar sessions as well. And we also do live events at venues. Right now, currently, our One Guru Institute is here in Upland, California. But starting in January, we're going to have three locations, one here in Upland, California, one in Cleveland, Ohio, and one in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we also do in-salon programs. If there are salons who want to host one of our events, we'd be happy to do that. Uh, I have some gurus who have joined me. One is Dale Smith. Dale has a 40-year history in the beauty industry. He has been an international director of education for several hair color companies. Uh, he's wonderful with design. He's wonderful with color, color especially. We have a third... Um, a third uh, uh, guru that has joined us and uh, will be making uh, her official announcement hopefully in January. Her name is Abigail Brown. She is phenomenal with uh, editorial and fashion work. And you'll be seeing her uh, putting together webinars and uh, offering that a lot as well as live in events. I think the, the, the thing that when people say what sets us apart from other companies is that you know, our goal is not only to help the salon professional grow, but it's also to to help uh, educators grow. You know, Anthony, as I look out there, I see independent education growing. I mean, it is really starting to grow more than I've ever seen it in years, and and that's wonderful. The thing that uh, I'm concerned about is that there are a lot of people who say I'm an educator. Now suddenly they have morphed morphed in to a, from a hairdresser into an educator and we know we know very well what you do behind the chair you may have high, be highly talented but uh, your ability to facilitate that information to other salon professionals you know that's another skill set and uh, my goal is to offer programs that help train trainers i really truly love doing that there's nothing more gratifying than watching a person when they're a little uh hesitant about themselves and a little uh you know you know on 
they're self-conscious and then watching them as they grow. And so as a company, we can try to answer, we can answer, actually, we have resources to answer all the needs, even for distributorships who want to help their salespeople understand, you know, how to create better relationships with their accounts. You know, that's what we're in. We're in the people business. And so as a company, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to expand so we can offer those kind of things that uh, will help people grow in the industry. So... Guru Villages, and as we say at Guru Villages, Anthony, now it's your turn to go out and discover your genius. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Dennis. I'll put the links to Guru Villages, uh, your Periscope, and, and a few other things in the show notes so that people that have been listening today can follow you and follow yes. up on, on this information. Uh, again, thank you very much for spending the time with us today and sharing your knowledge and helping everybody and improving this industry. Thank you, Anthony. Thanks for having us here. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Subscribe to us as you leave a positive review on iTunes. We hope you enjoyed the show. And until next time, please share this podcast with family and friends. Please follow us on Facebook.